This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hello and welcome to the Offscript podcast, where yet again it's another mixed bag coming your way today. We managed to catch up with Irish woman Orla Dempsey. She set a Guinness World Record for rowing between San Francisco and Hawaii across the Pacific Ocean. It was a row that spanned, I believe, over 4,000 kilometres, an extraordinary feat. There's technology when it comes to pets. Apparently dogs can now call you on the phone. Who knew the dog and bone would actually modernise to such an extent? And in golf, Colin Morikawa and Billy Horshaw, well they've been having their say about how golf can progress and evolve on a professional level with the tours around the world. Enjoy the podcast as always. The Off Script Podcast. Delighted to welcome into the studio a lady that we've had on the show before, a lady who has accomplished something quite extraordinary. Her name is Orla Dempsey, Chris. Indeed, yes. And this dates back to a story that we did bring you a few months ago, an all-women crew, two of whom based right here in Dubai, Orla, one of those, who set a new Guinness World Record for crossing the Pacific Ocean in a small rowing boat. The Girl Who Dare team that successfully rowed 4,400 kilometres from San Francisco to Hawaii as part of the Great Pacific Race. Orla, back on dry land. She joined us in our Expo 2020 Dubai studio. And Orla, we say a very good evening to you, first and foremost. Good evening, guys. Thanks for having me. Thank you for popping in. Your stories are remarkable. I think, first and foremost, congratulations on the world record. And I guess the first port of call is, you know, how are you physically and mentally after two months on the high seas? Yeah, coming back around to it now, physically, uh, it took some time, probably took... Probably took probably six, six, seven weeks to come back round physically. Um, mentally, you're still kind of processing it as well. Like it's not something that you just forget um, overnight. Did did your expectations of it um, were they met or or were they completely kind of bamboozled? Physically, um, no. I expected it to be physically more demanding than what it was. Really? Yeah. Yeah, but the, but again, I think that comes down to your body adapting, doesn't it? You know, you just you have kind of an expectation in your mind, and I was expecting to be pushed to an absolute limit, and I didn't come close to it. So that was in a, in a way an anticlimax, but obviously it wasn't really an anticlimax. Um, but kind of quite a nice anticlimax. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure what I was actually expected to happen. Like if it did meet it, like probably death was the next thing, yeah. really. But. Uh, but yeah, uh, it it did it did meet it in a lot of aspects, like in terms of um, just like your thought process when things get hard, what you do, like what you turn to, um, things like that. But how how often did things get hard? Every day. Every right. day. Wow. Yeah. yeah wow. Paint us a picture because let, 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 I don't want to take you back there because you're trying to forget it for goodness' sake. But let's go back there for our listeners this evening. Paint a picture. What are we talking? The rowing boat. There was you and your two buddies. Paint a picture as to exactly kind of what your environment was like for two months so in, in a way it was really simple you just had to eat you had to sleep and you had to roll and, and that was it there was nothing else to divert your mind there was nothing else to do there was bits and pieces on the boat but like your day would start with well you, your day started whenever you wanted your day to start we have this game where which which shift was your first shift you know so it'd be like oh I'm on the last shift of the day but you, you were back in the seat two hours later so it didn't really matter but it was just kind of like mental things so you you split your shifts into two hour chunks no four hour chunks rowing two hours rest so we got kind of quite behind at the beginning we had a slow start and um, we were supposed to be three on three off so you'd equal rest and then we just kind of thought we need to push on a little bit here so we went for four hours on two hours off so for me like my first shift would be at 
oh, they changed so much because we kept messing with our patterns. But my last shift would be from uh, 7 to 11. And then that would be my last shift of the day. So then my day would start at 1 a.m. Wow. So it would be 1 okay. till 5, and then I'd be off 5 till 7, and I'd be on again 7 till 11. So you were getting two-hour pockets of sleep for two months. The longest you slept, what, what are we talking, the longest you slept? Literally two hours? Yeah, and if you, you wouldn't get them two hours to sleep, you know, because by the time you come in, we'd really bad weather, so you'd take off all of your wet gear, you'd need to try and dry off so you didn't soak the cabin for the next person that was coming in. Um, there was times we got a bit more, uh, we had to go on power anchor for two, three days, so that was probably the longest period that we got to, to rest up. But all the times that we were moving, like be it how slow we were moving, it was two hours maximum. Okay, so one was resting, two were rowing. Is yeah. that, that that's how it was working? And and when you when it was your turn to rest, could you switch your mind off, or were you always distracted by, you know, your environment? Yeah, sometimes. So I was like the first one to go through my alarm. So then for me, <laughs> yeah. So it's funny, but then for me, it was like then every time I went to put my head down, I was just so conscious and not doing that. So I'd be trying to sleep, but trying to be like don't sleep through your alarm, yeah. don't sleep through your alarm. And the next minute it's 15 minutes to your next shift and you've probably gained five minutes sleep because you've been stressing so much about not sleeping in that you can't sleep. You know, and there'd be different things like um, if there was a boat, whoever was in the cabin, although that was your rest time, you still had to be on your um, AIS, still had to be looking around, make sure there was no vessels that were coming near us. If, a, if an alarm went off, it was your responsibility. Because the two outside can't hear anything. You know, they're out there with the wind and the rain and the waves, and so they can't hear the alarm going off. Well, that was going to be my next question, because everyone in the car this evening, we're comfy in this beautiful studio down here at Expo 2020 Dubai. People are driving home in the confines of their car. Paint that vivid picture for us, if you can, Orla. What is it like in the middle of the Pacific with nothing but water? Yeah, it's it's exactly that. There's nothing but water. Um, a lot of the time we didn't see daylight. We were just in a cloud the whole time. And our weather router kept saying to us, oh, the cloud loves you. You're cloud goddesses. The cloud keeps following you. Because <laughs> every day it was like, you'll see sunshine tomorrow, you'll see sunshine tomorrow, and tomorrow would come and there was no sunshine. So for a lot of the time, we didn't really see a sunrise or a sunset. It was just, it went from like light gray to dark gray to nighttime, to light gray to dark gray to nighttime. Wow. So there was oh, wow. that. Some of the times you couldn't, you couldn't even see the water, you know. So you were in this really bad weather and waves were crashing over, but you, you couldn't see them. So you, you kind of became like, as cliche as it sounds, you kind of became a little bit at one with the water. So you, you actually had to feel it instead of see it. Now, the, the movie Perfect Storm comes to mind. I think George Clooney's in it. It's a random little <laughs> reference there. But when they're up on that boat and they're up on the swell and you're watching and you're thinking, oh, wow, that, that scares me. I mean, I, I don't swim, as regular listeners will know. So water, I have a weird relationship with water. And you're laughing at that, as many people do, Orla. But talk to us about the swell. What are we, how high are we speaking? We kind of put it down to maybe 60 foot. 60 foot of yeah. water when we were in the worst of it like and it's like what you said in the break it's almost like a wall of water and you're just watching it and you're you're just completely at the mercy of it so whether that wave just goes under your boat whether it crashes before the boat or whether it, whether it crashes directly on top of you you could do nothing you just had to sit and let it happen and that was it like it would it would rock the boat it would blow you out of your seats um, we, were, we had two spare oars with us and they were like you don't need like you won't break an oar you absolutely will not break an oar we broke two 
So we had no more ores left. If, if another ore went, we were down to one person oh, well. rowing. Um, what was the biggest heart in mouth moment for you? Um, there was a, a couple. There was one with um, another vessel that was coming up, flashing up on our AIS that was going to come within uh, 300 feet of our stern, which sounds like quite a distance, but when our boat is 24 foot, what's that like? What's that, six metres? Yeah, 24 feet to nothing. Yeah, and they're, they're like 120, 140 metres long, probably bigger. So the swell alone off that vessel would have turned us inside out. So that was one where we couldn't actually get a hold of them on the radio. They weren't responding to us. They were travelling at like 18 knots in our oh direction. Lord. We were going at one knot. <laughs> like, <laughs> we weren't going to win that foot race. But um, wow, that was one. But then, you know, like they come on the radio and everything is fine. So it's, it only ever lasts a couple of minutes. And it was the same thing with the waves. There was a couple where we were like, oh, this is this is it now. This is it. We're going. You know, you're, you're literally telling yourself this is it. We're done for. Yeah, yeah. There was one time where me and Jane were rowing and like it was the thing we learned like about not being beam on with the waves. So beam on is like that the side of your boat is in line with as the wave breaks because if that happens, it's like rolling down a hill. Um, so we got caught beam on and there was this massive, massive wave and like the two of us just let go of the oars and held onto the ropes like we were sure this was it. And then it just smashed the boat like just threw us over and back. But it was, it was fine. Wow. Oh, my word. That is incredible, not for the faint-hearted. Uh, we also spoke a little bit off-air about the kind of mental toll that it took in the aftermath, readjusting to life back on dry land. Yeah, it did. Um, it started with the, the first couple of days where, you know, it was just absolute exhaustion set in. You know, you've just put your body through this absolute stress for two months and you've just kind of sucked it up and got on with it. So you don't actually spend that much time reflecting on it. First two days are very similar. We just slept. We just like slowly had to like get back into normal foods again and stuff. And and then after that, um, you kind of set in like with bits of night terrors, nightmares, like, you know, everything that could have gone wrong while you're on the row, like was now coming to life in your sleep. So that was probably three or four weeks of really, really bad sleep, like waking up with that, seeing seeing lights, seeing vessels, land, things that we were crashing into, like people going overboard. Oh, wow. And I guess kind of once once they kind of subsided a little bit, then you kind of put it to the back of your mind a little bit and then you focus on the physical uh, rehab of it. Um, you know, so trying to get back to trying to get back to train. And I remember I went to my first pre-season with rugby and I was having cold sweats in the warm-up. Like I was physically just absolutely... Spent. Yeah. And it was so funny. Everyone would be like, oh, you must be so fit. You've just done that. But actually the complete opposite. You know, you took something like 24 steps a day was all you took like walking to the seat and back from the seat and then you just rode the rest of the time there was just nothing else well I was amazed at this because it's probably on us that we didn't start there the why why did you guys do this and you were telling us which I find remarkable you only saw the boat you only set foot on the boat you only saw where you were going to be living essentially for the two months two days before you set off from San Francisco yeah so when I went to San Francisco the boat was there in the yard so I could see it but then the first time I actually got in a boat in water ever was two days <laughs> before it. Yeah, we had to go on a fake race, like a prologue race. So you just have to go out under the bridge and you have to make a meal and um, call on your satellite phone and use your VHF and all the stuff you would have to do. Um, we did that for maybe three or four hours and then that was it. 
Were there any arguments that broke out? Because I imagine <laughs> tensions would have been occasionally running high. I'm not going to ask you about what happened when you slept through the alarm, Orla, but I mean, it must be difficult to maintain, you know, a harmonious relationship, let's say. Yeah, I mean, it was difficult at times, um, especially when I felt like things weren't fair. That was when it would bother me. I wouldn't really be an aggro person. I wouldn't, you know, be snappy or something with anyone. And I always like it was my main aim every day was to come out with the cabin with a smile or with a silly knock knock joke or something like that. You know, because we had to do that. You know, you think you're coming out of the cabin to relieve someone who's just been sat there for four hours. So, and one person that's just been there for two and is facing into another two, you know, you come out with a bad attitude or you come out in a mood or something like it just completely, it just completely sets the tone. So that like trying to make sure that, you know, you always come out with, with a bit of positivity and a bit of leasing new life and a smile at a long time went a lot lot of the way. Long periods of silence or did you chat much to your rowing partner? Um, it would depend who I was rowing with, um, you know, me, me and Jane had this thing where we would never put headphones in with each other. So we would either listen to music and we'd comment on it or we'd sing along or we'd have just like real conversation. You know, like I learned a lot of stuff about her that I didn't know. She learned a lot of stuff about me that like uh, she wouldn't yeah. have known. And, you know, you've got four hours to kill with someone. And I had the luxury of doing it with my best friend. So, you know, we, we never got that time. Like we're always busy. Like we're just we're always. It's Dubai. Yeah. in this part of the world everyone's busy we're getting loads of messages for you uh, your rugby coach has been in touch says absolute legend Alls. proud to be your rugby coach love you says Gillis um, we've had a lot of questions coming in for you one of those what was the first meal back on dry land where did you head straight to and did you binge uh, there was no binging unfortunately because you kind of had to be a little bit sensible in oh, that yeah. in that remark we've been eating dehydrated food for 60 days um, but our first meal back was in Waikiki Yacht Club when we arrived um, there was like loads of stuff there loads and loads of fresh fruit and we got burger and stuff but I was more interested in the fresh fruit just for it being fresh like it was really good I'm jealous. I've never done it. And we're getting messages. Ravi's been in touch. I've been to Hawaii and the very look of the ocean and the gigantic sunset from my hotel in Honolulu was scary. Can't believe this lady's feet. Honourable mention on air. So he's in his hotel room and scared at the size of the sun. <laughs> and you've gone out there in the Pacific. Yeah. I'm conscious of time, Orla. I look at you. You're someone that you've said off air to us. You love a challenge. Are you done and dusted now? Or have you got something else in the pipeline? No, I wouldn't say I'm done and dusted. Interesting. No, um, potentially have something in the pipeline for early 2022 um, with my mate Jane, but we're still ironing Back out. Back on a boat or? No, 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 no. On dry land? No, dry land for the, well, some 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 in the water but mostly oh, dry land okay. Oh, okay that's a nice little tease <laughs> I like it I like oh, I it. Listen, I should give a massive shout out you have hinted at it your rugby coach has been in, ch- in touch Dubai Sharks as well they are very proud of you I know a lot of the guys down there and yeah coming back has it been difficult to keep your feet on the ground because I imagine you're a hero amongst them <laughs> don't worry they keep you uh, <laughs> they firmly keep your feet yeah. on the ground oh, yeah. around there yeah there's no deities at that club no, I'm assuming abs- absolutely not no, they, they've been great like, their support throughout the whole thing was was incredible you know oh, so amazing um, yeah they're a fantastic club oh brilliant Orla Dempsey it's fantastic to have you on our show we would have easily spoken to you for another half an hour yeah. but I know you've got to get going I know you're very busy but thank you so much for popping in and having a chat with us on Off Script thank you very much great. for having me my pleasure The Off Script Podcast There's been another revolutionary breakthrough for our four-legged friends, and it was unveiled very recently. You are, of course, familiar with the dog and bone. The dog and bone, yes. Yep. What about an actual dog phone? I mean, 
<laughs> you know my thoughts, Bob. Uh, there's a headline which reads, Can I give you a call bark? Wee. Which I quite enjoyed. Uh, dog phone lets pets ring their owners. How? All right, let me How? explain to you. Take all the information and then treat it in an objective manner and then give us your assessment. Don't just write it off I'm before you've heard about straight away. the info. Okay? The dog moves a ball containing a device sending a signal to a laptop and therefore launches a, vi- <laughs> a video call. Are you call. listening to yourself right now? <laughs> All right, now? no, seriously. Okay, ready? The owner can choose whether to take the call and when to hang up, while they can also place a call to their pet, although the dog has to move the ball to pick up. Okay? Right. Right, that's the, con- the concept. So... Essentially, Dr. Elena Herskidge-Douglas of the University of Glasgow, your neck of the woods. It's from Scotland. (laughs) Said the following. All of this existing technology, says Dr. Elena, allows you to measure your pet's steps or ring your pets or remotely give your dog food, but your dog doesn't really have any choices. They don't have freedom of choice, says Dr. Elena, uh, who is the first author of the research used to create the device, I should add. Um, Now, she added that giving animals choices Choice and control had been shown to improve their welfare and well-being, okay? The dog phone considers both owner and the dog and gives the latter, and I quote there here, a sense of agency, okay? Um, Now, Dr. Douglas said this is just one way to demonstrate that dogs can control technology. We can build technology for dogs. Now, in the testing for this... um, it was Dr. Douglas's own black Labrador, Zach, who was chief tester. So over 16 days, this right. device was tested by the nine-year-old black Labrador, Zach, and a diary detailing the calls between owner and pet suggested, and I don't want to be cause aspersions here or speculate you know, wildly, but there are suggestions that the dog did not always seem to know what was going oh, on. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think you need to be Sherlock Holmes, Robbie Greenfield, to realise and understand Can I read you some of these diary entries? Okay. Dog rang me, but was not interested in our call. Instead, was checking for things in his bed, wrote Dr. Douglas, (laughs) noted during the testing of one iteration. Another entry reveals the potential pitfalls of the dog phone. Dog walking around, wagging and then laying down. I was in a meeting, so I had to hang up quickly, says one record. And the other example, the dog triggered the system with their backside. This, c- <laughs> this could have been deliberate and the dog's unique way of triggering an interaction, speculates Dr. Elena Douglas. This could have been deliberate. Hear yourself. The dog's got no Scooby-Doo that this elaborate contraption is sending a signal and that this dog is logging into a video call. It is a load of baloney. And you know the worst thing is, there'll be people out there that will buy that. Will buy my my that. question is, why do we need... I mean, technology has invaded our lives to, to a f- saturated point as it is. Do we need to, to foist this upon these poor animals as well? well the, the I mean, a- is no. technology is, is, is definitely having an adverse effect on humankind. We all know that. We just don't know how bad and to what extent it is. I'm sure there'll be studies that are released in the future that tell us exactly and precisely how bad technology is for us. There probably are available at the moment. There are already studies saying that it, it impacts mental health, that it impacts your kind of daily sense of focus, well-being, etc., focus, all that sort of stuff. Let's keep the pets out of this, would be my thought. We don't need a dog phone. uh, Absolutely. You're stating the bleeding obvious there, Chief. But ultimately what it comes down to is it's dollars, right? People will make money out of this, and there will be 
some people out there, you know who you are in the cars this evening, <laughs> that think to themselves, dog phone, yeah, quite like that idea, and you'll go out there and you'll buy it, you're mad. <laughs> Someone's just messaged in this dog story making me wish I had dozed off. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm with you on that front as well. You know my feelings towards animals. Don't wish ill will of them. But my goodness, animals. We love them on this show. I say we, you and Sonal. Far too much animals. I always say, if you don't have empathy for animals, you don't have empathy. The Off Script Podcast. Live Golf Investments, which is an investment firm under the majority ownership of the Saudi Arabia's public investment fund, is set to invest $200 million into the Asian tour, the tour that they've referred to as a sleeping giant. Mm. They're aiming to revamp that tour, implementing a new 10 event series, which starts next year, and that will run for at least a decade thereafter. There's also the possibility of this Super League, which would really throw the cat amongst the pigeons, promising to lure its participants with the promise of a different format more excitement think IPL yeah. on this front and extraordinary riches of course because of course the players are not going to move unless you really do dangle the carrot there is no doubt that this is a potential game changer I put the question last week to Keith Pelly in the announcement of the European Tour becoming the DP World Tour as of next year whether that was a consequence of what is bubbling up under the surface he sidestepped that it was very much Cristiano Ronaldo a little lollipop and he had lost his fullback there with that one Keith and we are hopeful to sit down with Keith over the course of the weekend to just ask where kind of golf is at and whether the European Tour certainly the PGA Tour as well they're acutely aware of what's bubbling up under the surface and I think there may come a time where we might have a little bit of a a tete-a-tete I think it's already bubbling up under the surface but I am intrigued as to what the future holds for golf because you Rob and to put this back on you and I've said it as well the, the need for more of a narrative we come back to and I hate to sound like a broken record golf needs it we need the best players competing against the best more often yeah, look, is there something unedifying about simply buying a, play, a player's favour? Yes, of course there is. Simply bribing a player to participate in an event with no history, no heritage. Well, you then say yes. bribing, that's a strong word. Buying them, essentially. Yeah. You're okay. buying that player. You're not bribing, yeah. I, I take that back. You're, you're buying them, you're buying their participation. You know, do we want to see that in sport? No, we want romance in sport, we want history, we want tradition. But the, rea- the reality of golf is this, that there are four major championships, there's a Ryder Cup, there's some other high-level tournaments that attract big viewing audience figures and excitement in the fandom of golf but for too many weeks of the year golf is ho-hum and something needs to change so if what is happening behind the scenes and and with different entities ends up forcing the hand of the European and PGA tours to to produce a a kind of stronger overall narrative as you put it then I think that's a good thing if something comes in that disrupts the apple cart completely and actually offers us more of that narrative I'm happy and open to seeing how that how I that affects well. the golf fan experience. You, you know my thoughts on this. An IPL-style six- to eight-week event at the end of the year. I'm sure if Keith, if you're listening tonight, you might not thank me for this, but I'd like to see a bit of a rejig. I'd love November and December to be free, uh, a bit freer, and I'd love those two months to allow your Morikawas, your Bryson DeChambeau's, your Rory Mackerel's, your Tommy Fleetwood's et al. Yeah. to come together in an IPL-style event because, and I said it to you the other night, I think it was all fair, in fact, Rob, that... Since the Ryder Cup, 
we haven't seen all of those players together. No. So the no, narrative is lost. And the other thing is golf, so dominated by the American market, is trying to be a global game. And, and who better to ask than Colin Morikawa, an American with Chinese and Japanese heritage, a man that considers himself a global player. He was asked, would he consider playing on the Asian tour if the incentive to do so is there? And he had this to say. You know, I'm not sure. I, I haven't thought about that. It's a great question. Um, but it goes back to growing the game, right? You know, yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be harder to play on the Asian tour. It's, there's going to be restrictions, but you know, I, I'm not the right person to ask. Cause I, to be honest, I haven't read up too much about it. You know, there's guys that are on the pack on the PJ tour that will know a lot more um, about what the actual rules are of trying to apply to, to go and play in certain events. But once again, that doesn't mean we can't stop growing the game. You know, I, I was in Japan a few weeks ago and the fans and the kids out there, like they love the game so much and they, they don't care who you are, you know, yes, they know certain players, they know the big name players, but every player out there was getting an applause every time you'd walk to a tee box. So that, you know, it's just about doing our part, you know, going over playing those events and then trying to grow the game. Cause when you have opportunities to play around the world and you know, it's, it's aligned, right. Makes sense. So that's uh, Colin Morikawa's thoughts. He's focused on growing the game, making it more popular around the world as one of the best proponents of it. Billy Horschel, not short of an opinion, is Billy. He actually has an idea on the best road for the PGA and European tours to withstand these challenges to the status quo. He had this to say. I think we need to look at the tour as what's going to be sustainable in 25 years. And that's what the tour needs to do and not so much worry about the Saudis or the PGL, um, they need to do what's, what's best for the PGA tour. Um, and I think, you know, in my mind, I think, you know, we should make the tour more competitive. And, and what I mean by that is that maybe instead of giving out 125 cards every year, we cut it down to hundred. And if we cut down, you know, the corn Ferry cards from 50 to 30, you know, you've got roughly 150 guys. Now you make the fields 130, 120, maybe, um, now you're getting, you know, players, the better players week in and week out, you know, guys aren't, um, sort of just happy finishing 90th on the PJ tour every year and collecting a million plus dollars and, and that they're actually striving to be the best players on the PJ tour. I think if we would change the way the money pays out where the top 30, 40 guys get paid a lot of money and then, you know, you don't get paid as much down the below, below. So it really and uh, pushes guys to really do everything they can to be the best player that they can possibly be. And by doing that, I think that takes care of, you know, any other tour that comes competing the, uh, against the PJ tour or the European tour. So like I said, I think we're doing great stuff, but I think we need to make sure that, you know, we're looking at all scenarios before we do make an ultimate decision of the path forward. Thoughts there are Billy Horschel. Fascinating stuff. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 